This podcast was created to educate listeners on the experiences of diverse individuals. However, all opinions expressed by the host or guest do not reflect the overall standing of Tarleton Radio or Tarleton State University. Welcome to Making Space, a Diversity Dialogue, and I am your host, Cole. This is a bi-weekly podcast where together we'll have questions answered about socially sensitive topics while learning how to create lasting relationships with diverse people. This episode is in honor of Women's History Month. We're going to be talking about women in politics, women in voting, and we actually have two expert guests this week. That was really fun for me to find out. <laughs> I'm really glad to have them on. It is Dr. Jensen Branscombe and Dr. Marcy Reynolds. Now, Dr. Branscombe is an assistant professor here at Tarleton State University, and she has experience in U.S. immigration, women, gender, sexuality in the United States history, American Southwest borderlands, and modern United States history. And Dr. Reynolds uh, teaches at Tarleton as well. She has expertise in American politics, interest groups, the judicial branch, and state and local government. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to them and they can tell you how they gained this expertise and a little bit about themselves. Okay, well, great. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. Um, This is Jensen Branscombe. So, yeah, I teach history at Tarleton. I've been here for about five years. Um, Most of what I teach are modern U.S. history classes, but I do uh, have expertise and specialization in immigration history and women and gender and sexuality history. Um, I, I... sort of a a long um, career path to get me to these interests. But um, I really developed, I would say, my interest in women's history specifically a little bit uh, later. And it was when um, actually I left my undergraduate and just started paying attention to the world around me and noticing some uh, different experiences that women were having, you know, in the workplace uh, and in politics. And so when I went back to graduate school to study history more in depth, I started wanting to know a little bit more about the history of, of women, specifically in the United States. And so I uh, included that in my study, and I'm really delighted to be able to teach those topics here at Tarleton. That's great. Now, have did you have uh, personal experiences with those differences before you came to higher education, or did you just really start noticing after you, you graduated? Well, I think it was, I didn't really uh, notice until I graduated with my BA in history mm-hmm. and I was applying for jobs and I think I was interested in, in jobs that historically were maybe not considered uh, women's work right roles, or feminine right? and and that really started to, to get the, uh, the the wheels the gears rolling in terms of thinking about um, why why do we even have these con- conceptions of women's work and men's work and how um, challenging would it be for a woman to enter these predominantly male fields and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, education historically has been uh, women's work, considered right. women's work, but there is a difference in higher education where, mm-hmm. you know, women are more associated with, with younger kids and that caretaking right, role. Right, that nurturing nature. And so I've, I've had wonderful experiences through graduate school and working at Tarleton, but uh, I do think these gender issues 
um, play a role in, in higher education. Right, and th these are all important. We'll get to those. And now we're going to hear from Dr. Reynolds. Go ahead. All right, hi, I'm Marcy Reynolds, and this is my second year here at Tarleton State University. I work in the Government Legal Studies and Philosophy Department, and mostly teaching Texas government, a federal government in Introduction to Political Science classes. I have entered this profession, this is my second career actually. I was a high school teacher before, so oh, really? yes, it wasn't a huge jump, but I taught government and became really excited through teaching government and learning more about the civil rights movement that really intrigued me and how it was evidence of democratic processes in our government to a certain degree. And so when I went to grad school, I decided I want to see if there is democracy in America. Mm. Yeah, that was my question. And okay. so, yes, and so that led to my focusing in on interest groups and um, state and local governments and processes in those uh, mm -hmm. levels and then also with the judicial branch and the decisions of the judicial branch which had such an important effect on civil rights in this country and also democratic processes. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you very mm -hmm. much for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. I think we're we're going to change it up a little bit. Re um, our past two episodes we've kind of had a different structure but this time we're going to go over vocabulary first. Now I have a list and I didn't know if you guys had any extra to add but we're going to go ahead and go over the gender gap. Did one of you want to take that definition? Okay, sure. All right. So the gender gap, the online definition, mm -hmm. is a discrepancy between men and women in various endeavors, fields, etc. So I just took it as discrepancy between men and women and then applied a political lens to that. Right. Okay, good. So started out just basically are there policy preferences that you could say are more gendered okay right and studies have shown that there are a few issues that are of greater interest to women than men or that women seem to focus on more than men and those would include the role of government in policy areas such as education health care welfare and gun control so we have that kind of split between men and women, and women paying more attention to those kinds of issues. However, I do want to add that with party polarization, it seems like the men and women within parties are tending to agree more on issues and how to resolve them. So you would have a greater distance inter-party. So women in the Republican Party versus women in the Democratic Party would have a wider distance in their policy preferences mm -hmm. than within the Republican Party. Okay. Yes. And along that line, though, interestingly, women since around the 1980s have tended to vote more often for the Democratic candidate than the Republican candidate. And there's about a 10% difference in that how often they will vote for the Democratic over the Republican. And this is pretty consistent across racial demographics as well, with the women favoring mm -hmm. the Democratic candidates. All right. And then finally, so that was gender gap with policy yes. preferences, partisan identification, mm -hmm. and then also I wanted to just briefly address political ambition, because there is a gender gap with political ambition. Right. It, I feel like as recently we have gotten a lot more ambition from women mm -hmm. to go after political roles. I mean, if we look at the presidential um, election or primaries that we're doing right now, there there were quite a few women mm -hmm. in that. 
I know Elizabeth Warren was one of the major ones. Um, it, I, I find that really interesting. I'm glad that we're getting there. I just wonder where that was before. Well, and if I can just interject, this is uh, Jensen again. Just, I, I think you're right, right? Ambition matters, but it's also about opportunity, of right? Which I know we're going to get to, yes. but I think um, it's not that just like, previous right we, 21st century women, women didn't want these right. women had ambition <laughs> so, women yeah. had ambition it was yeah. just um was there a place that they were able to go with that absolutely that is it because mm-hmm. there are institutional barriers to women advancing still mm-hmm. yeah it is a male-dominated um, venue when you're running a campaign or you're trying to find funders primarily you're going to be working with men mm-hmm. um there's been an exclusion of women both formally and informally, in you know, the smoke-filled rooms, et cetera. So there's just been this pattern of women being mm-hmm. excluded from politics. Also, if you think about just incumbency, and, you know, not any kind of gender bias there on the outside, but just... But that uh, inner thinking, what you've always grown up with. Precisely. And the people who are in office get reelected time and time again Mm -hmm. so this opportunity is limited you know for women so when there's an open seat like in congress then you have you see more women coming out to run for those offices right Mm -hmm. yeah um so women have been also somewhat reluctant to step into this gap just because of some of the social constraints that they are under um, there's a perception that women candidates have to be more prepared better qualified right you know um, possess leadership skills more consistently than men mm-hmm. do and so there's gendered patterns of socialization that affect you know the perception of candidates versus also w- women's roles and so we see that women are often expected to fulfill domestic roles and spend time giving care to children and elderly relatives mm-hmm. that men do not have the same right. kind of There's just this, I mean, and we're going back to the definition here, this gender mm-hmm. gap between what we perceive males should be doing, mm-hmm. even if it's not outwardly or loud spoken, versus what we perceive or have been taught that females should be doing. Exactly. So right. gender gap can mean many things. And I like that you mentioned uh, how more women seem to be running now, mm-hmm. right? And especially in the 2018 election, right? we saw a large increase in the amount of women running for office and, mm-hmm. and winning. So yes. Yes, that was really nice. Yeah. All right. Um, our next vocabulary term is going to be glass ceiling. Um, I don't know if one of y'all wants yep. to take that one too. Oh, I'll jump in Dr. Again. Reynolds, you're like, yes, I have <laughs> yes. all of these answers. <laughs> Just these two. <laughs> So the glass ceiling, again, just an online definition, it's an intangible barrier within a hierarchy that prevents women and minorities from advancing. So we've heard of the glass ceiling terminology for over 50 years. I've heard it thrown around, and it was only recently that I really kind of understood what it was, and I always associated it with the workplace. Mm -hmm. But going to politics, what is, No, how is it? a very similar Mm -hmm. application as to the workplace then. Uh, Women can gain power to an extent, but it's it's limited. And so I'm going to go back to the workplace real quick. Of course. Just with that. Okay, yes. And just thinking about 50 years ago, how different the work environment was then with work and or serving in Congress, just the difference between men and women. You know, now we have federal and state... um, prohibitions on sexual 
harassment, which mm -hmm. we didn't have back then. Mm -hmm. Now we have the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which we didn't have back then. So I really think that women have made advances in advancing towards the glass ceiling, but it's just it's difficult to go further. I don't, I don't know, like Hillary Clinton, right? You know, like right. Getting into that top spot. Yes, mm -hmm. and we see in Congress there's a plateau where about 25% of the members of Congress are women, and we don't see that changing much. You know, it, it fluctuates, right. but yeah, we haven't gained. We don't. We don't see a large difference mm -hmm. anymore. It's just stayed at the number of seats that are taken, right. and that's it. Exactly. So in a way, that could be a glass ceiling. You know, Nancy Pelosi, mm -hmm. she's Speaker of the House. So we have retained that, and yet. Um, as far as just representation um, and moving into these places where you have a seat at the table mm -hmm. and you actually have some power, right. there seems to be some limitation there. Right. Mm -hmm. There's some stagnance going mm -hmm. on there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and if I can add that, I, I think this glass um, you know, visualization is important because mm -hmm. some, some of these um, restrictive laws that you mentioned, Marcy, earlier, they, they are gone, right? You can no longer discriminate uh, on the basis of sex um, when mm -hmm. it comes to work, right? You can no longer discriminate. At least openly. Like, <laughs> right, right. Say that women have to look a certain way or, or weigh a certain weight to have these mm -hmm. positions. But exactly well, what you're saying is that while we call it a glass ceiling is that that barrier is still there, but it's, it's, it's made more invisible, right? Because right. those uh, more restrictive policies... Um, have, have been scrapped, right? Mm -hmm. But now we have these kind of uh, de, de facto, right? Or, yeah, uh, like not all like that evident, right? That, oh, you're, you're not, we're not going to give you that job because you're a woman. We're, we're going to find other reasons to Right, maybe to you don't have this, away, so. uh, this particular skill or this level of experience, even if you have the same as other candidates. Mm -hmm. Right. And we might be getting into this later on, but I did want to add, and, and this is relatively recent, actually, where you don't hear people looking at women and saying, oh, look at our women candidates for office. Look at her hair. You know, why isn't she wearing a skirt? I mean, that was in the 1990s. Reporters would focus more on women candidates and how they looked and what they wore more than their issues. Yeah, that is... That is incredibly interesting. I know we, we reached a point in political history where we had TV instead of radio, and it suddenly became more of a looks game and more of, uh, more of a popularity contest. Mm -hmm. Wow, that might have been a hot topic to say. <laughs> um, well, we went to more of what people looked like um, mm -hmm. as to what they sounded like. Mm -hmm. So then, of course, you get to women who do have this prestige of, oh, she has to have a skirt over her knees or... Um, don't so show her collarbone or et cetera. Exactly. That's a good point to bring up. Right, and I think that does fit in with the definition that Dr. Branson mm -hmm. gave us for the glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so our next one, and I wanted to make sure to put this on here because I know a lot of people hear the term and just see it in school textbooks like, okay, but they don't really think about what it means, um, and that's going to be suffrage. 
Right. So um, I, I'll address this one. Yes. Um, it, and it is an important term. It is. And interesting because it sounds horrible, right? Mm. Oh, we want to end <laughs> suffrage. That seems right. bad. And I hear that every once in a while. But um, actually, suffrage quite simply just refers to um, the right to vote, right? It's a political mm-hmm. franchise. And so um, we, part of the reason um, that I think it's important that we're talking about women in politics today is that this year is the 100-year anniversary of women getting the right to right. vote. And that's going to be in August, right? Yes. yes. Uh, but, right, of course, the campaign was, was much, much, much longer. longer. Um, but we refer to that um, kind of conventionally as the, the woman's suffrage movement. So mm-hmm. it was about women specifically fighting for that political uh, right to get the right to vote. But, of course, other groups in American history and world history um, have, have had their suffrage movements mm-hmm. to earn that when um, we think of it, we usually think women's suffrage. Yeah, and, and in fact, um, to a lesser extent here, but certainly in, in England and Western Europe, um, these, these women's rights activists and their um, you know, male supporters and allies mm-hmm. would, would often call themselves um, suffragettes. Right? So it right. sort of became part of the lingo. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, did you all have any other vocabulary terms you, th- you thought about? Um, if I could add add one more, of course, um, of course, because I had a difficult time. <laughs> um, I know with some of these topics, I am completely like all I'm doing is my own personal research. So if there is anything you guys could bring, that is amazing. Uh, well, the term I thought of because it has historical significance, but also current relevance mm-hmm. is the term Equal Rights Amendment, or okay. ERA. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I would imagine most people who are, are sort of familiar with these topics might associate the ERA with, like, 1970s feminism, mm. but it actually originates in the 1920s. And basically okay. what the Equal Rights Amendment was is a, a proposed uh, amendment to the United States Constitution that would ban discrimination on the basis of sex. And it's pretty simple, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that That's pretty much the language. Um, so it's originally proposed not long after women do get the right to vote and it's a sign that this is a a a victory for women it's Mm -hmm. not a complete victory as i know we'll talk about right right? it leaves out a lot of non-white women um but it was something to be celebrated but the fact that we move on pretty quickly to uh, alice paul proposing the equal rights amendment is a sign that there are other areas of life in american society where women um, are not uh, yet equal to men um, it doesn't gain a whole lot of traction in those um, first few decades after it's mm-hmm. proposed, uh, but then it does become another issue in the 1970s. And again, this is the era of um, the second wave feminist <laughs> movement and women's yes. liberationists who, who who take this back up, and it actually does uh, pass the United States Congress, but it fails to get the requisite number of states to ratify it, right? So I don't want right. to get too much in the weeds, but um, it, it sort of faded away again. There was, there's actually a pretty strong uh, resistance to the Equal Rights Amendment from a number of areas, but there are also women who opposed it. Um, but it's, I mentioned it's been in the news recently because um, just in January of this year, the, the 38th state, Virginia, uh, voted to ratify the 38th Amendment. So we now have the the number of states needed to ratify, but there's a little catch that uh, mm-hmm. we we passed the the seven year, initial seven year deadline to do so. So this is kind of a current um, news item, and we'll see where it goes. But I think it's another kind of important term for people to be familiar because our Constitution actually doesn't um, fully address sex other than 
um, right. specifying certain rights for men, I should say. Right. I, I mean, there's there's reasons we have <laughs> amendments in the Bill of Rights, and there are definitely certain things we need to add on as uh, as we grow as a people and as a nation. I think we're going to go into history now. We mentioned the women's suffrage movement, and that was from 1848 around there until 1920 now that's not saying that there weren't women fighting for rights before that that's just when it really kind of picks up and gets traction and that's going to be because of the women's rights convention right with uh, Elizabeth Canton no uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton there's a C in there (laughs) sorry about that Um, and that was in Seneca Falls, New York. Is that how you pronounce that? Okay. Yes. Yes, uh, With the Declaration of Sentiments. Did you guys want to add anything about that? Well, I I will just say, I mean, you're absolutely right. We, um, that date is, is sort of pointed to as, as the beginning of what will become, um, this whole movement. Yeah. Right. This woman rights movement. Um, but if you, and I do recommend listeners to, to look up the Declaration of Sentiments because it's really quite fascinating because it, mm-hmm. it, it is sort of um, a recognition that um, since the founding of the United States and the Declaration of Independence, um, women had not been fully recognized mm-hmm. as full and equal citizens. And I, th- I think sometimes, right, we, we forget that people, you know, 100, 200 years ago um, sort of re- recognized to a certain extent some of the same um, injustices that we do today. So right. um, I would just add, right, it, it is a, a declaration that intentionally include, includes equality for men and women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I just wanted to note that also Elizabeth Stan was the first woman to run for the House of Representatives in 1866. That is a something I found that was really interesting. So this person, she really, really was gung-ho and did have that ambition like we were talking about earlier and that was so long ago but she was ready for it she was ready for it to happen now in 1869 susan b anthony and elizabeth stanton founded the national women's suffrage association um i didn't find too much about that so do y'all have anything to say about it um well, it, it is considered, right, sort of the national um, and, and really the most significant woman suffrage mm-hmm. organization. Um, it certainly won't be the other one. And I, I, I do want to stress maybe this is a good point to recognize that, you know, keep in mind from this transition from 1848 um, through where we are now in the right. 1860s and 70s, we've seen the abolition of slavery, mm-hmm. um, the, the ratification of the 15th Amendment to the mm-hmm. Constitution, which... Um, got rid of of race, right? Or you right. cannot can no longer use race, color, or previous condition of certitude, servitude um, when it came to voting rights. So, um, the, uh, you know, a, a lot of folks um, we want to keep in mind that while we can admire and respect that the the work that these women were doing, um, they certainly had had some failings in terms of right. their tactics and uh, leaving out um, non-white women. Mm-hmm. By and large, this wasn't across the board, but this will certainly come to be kind of a shortcoming of, of the early 20th century um, mm-hmm. woman suffrage movement. Um, so there'll be, there'll be others and uh, other organizations that are important, right. but that's right. certainly one to, to know One of. to mention, mm-hmm. right. 
Uh, now I'm just going to run through a few names here of some firsts that women have done um, in this movement. So the first woman to run for president, uh, Victoria Woodhull in 1872 uh, in the Equal, Equal Rights Party. And then we've got the first woman to be elected as mayor in 1887. That's uh, Susan Salter in Kansas. And then the first three women elected to state legislature in 1894, and that's uh, for Colorado House of Representatives, Clara Cressington, uh, Carrie Hawley, and Frances Clock. And the first woman elected as state senator was in 1896 in Utah, and that's Martha Hughes Cannon. And I also wanted to mention the first woman elected to Congress as well, and for the House of Representatives in 1917 and to 1919, and then again from 1941 to 1942. Now, we kind of go through there. There's so, so many more people and so many more, more first within that list. I know I just ran through a few of them very quickly, but when we really start, when we finally end that movement in a way, it's uh, the 19th Amendment in 1920 gave women the right to vote. Now, that's... I, I remember there are some constrictions on that, correct? You know, in terms of women voting? Yes, women voting. I had seen around, but I was never able to get a clear answer mm -hmm. that women had to be married to have the right to vote. No? No. no. I imagine I in some states... So they would pass laws like that yes but not the federal level perhaps mm -hmm. yes okay. but within states yes i certainly can imagine that happening there's some sort of regulation mm -hmm. to that mm -hmm. yeah yeah the, the 19th amendment itself just is pretty simple right right, right to vote cannot be denied on the basis of sex okay. um and and there were right and, and marcy's right to, to to mention that there are state laws at work here and actually women some women in some states had the right to right vote, to vote before 1920. Right. So 1920 was just that federal level of okay. Right. All right. right. We've heard you now. Right. Right. We've and, heard you. We will say that you can vote. Yeah. And so, and I would add then one one of these restrictions at kind of the state level are, um, you know, Jim Crow laws in the South. So right. I, I mentioned the 15th Amendment, and we have the 19th Amendment. So according to the Constitution, right, all women right all, all people at this point mm -hmm. should be able to vote and yet we know the rates of african-american voting in the mm -hmm. south um Af african-american women voting in the south right those right. rates stay very low through the civil rights era so mm -hmm. i think that would be maybe one of the, the kind of restrictions you're talking right. about so that that'd just be like the southern states using some sort of regulations uh be it that you had to name all congressmen or something yes those um, are literacy tests mm -hmm. yes literacy tests right uh right. if we're gonna compare um to african-american people mm -hmm. um you, you could have a regulation for oh you had to be married something like that and i did want to add mm -hmm. just here in texas of course because that's what i teach the yes. most right now yes <laughs> please right all right in 1902 texas instituted a poll tax Mm -hmm. yes. which was in yeah. place until 1966. Yes. Wow. So you had to vote. I mean, you had to pay to vote. To vote. Interesting. And they I would... I did not know that. Yes, they would require you to pay in the winter, early spring, before your crops went in. Mm. So when your money was particularly dear to you, you were having to pay for your seeds and all the mm -hmm. stuff that you needed to have a good crop. Instead of asking them to pay 
after the crops were brought in, they actually had some money prior to the general elections in November. Right. Right. So this was a law that particularly focuses people who are lower income. And you can imagine the formerly enslaved people. Right. It would be particularly targeted that way. Exactly. Who are primarily sharecroppers and Mm -hmm. tenants here. So that was a law that Texas had on the books until 1966. 60 years. Now, something even more insidious, I think, in 1923, after women got the right to vote, Mm. um, Texas instituted by state law white primaries. So Texas is a one-party state, by and large, for most of its history. Mm -hmm. We transitioned from Democrat to Republican, but we've always been like one-party state. Right. We were Democrat back then. And so the Democrats decided, well, the state law gave them power to limit people who participated in the primaries, which in effect would choose the candidate because Mm -hmm. the Democrat was going to win. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they instituted... The white primaries, which excluded, of course, African-American and Latinos Mm -hmm. from voting. And in 1927, a Supreme Court case overturned the state law. So then the Texas Democratic Party said, okay, we won't make it a state law. It will just be a party policy. So the white primaries continued Mm -hmm. until 1944 with Smith v. Allwright, another Supreme Court decision that said, no, you can't do that. You just can't have white primaries. Yes. (laughs) That is against all sorts of... The Constitutional Amendments, yes. yes. <laughs> and interestingly, there is a county in Texas that decided to have Jaybird primaries or a pre-primary mm-hmm. where a group of people got together and voted on who should run in the primary. And these were limited to white people in the Jaybird. Mm-hmm. And that was struck down in 1953. So basically, you know, over 30 years... Texas had a white primary. Right. It, it took a very long time for the southern states, specifically oh. Texas, yes. to try to try to keep up. Exactly. With equal rights. Yes. And even after you know, that was struck down in 1953, mm. local communities would have slating committees. And so the powerful uh, wheeler dealers, I guess, in the communities would get together and decide who they wanted to run for office. And then all the money and the support would go behind those candidates. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't on that list, then you very likely were not elected. Mm-hmm. So the power remained at the top. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. I wanted to mention that right after um, the 19th Amendment, the League of Women Voters was founded. And that was, tried, that was trying to get uh, women to kind of rally and make sure they use their right to vote. Right? Am I correct on that one? Uh, yes, I mean, this was, it, and I, I want to mention that League of Women Voters is still around today, oh, yes. and it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a great organization, mm-hmm. and um, they, they um, are, are, are nonpartisan, and they do a great job ahead of every election putting out voter guides, so you don't mm-hmm. have to be a woman, but I recommend, right, <laughs> this is one place resource. to go just to get that um, information, but yeah, you, you definitely see the kind of activism around um, women's political activism continue even after the vote and Mm -hmm. the League of Women Voters and the Equal Rights Amendment are are evidence of that. All right, now after the 19th Amendment, I was just going to run through a few more names. The first Latina woman to be elected for a statewide office was in 1923. Um, I think that's pronounced Solad uh, Chanon. And then the first uh, Native American woman was elected... uh, or was in state legislature in 1924. That's Cora Bell Reynolds Anderson. 
elected uh, to the Michigan State of House of Representatives. The, for, the first black woman elected, and there, there was someone, there was a black woman who was appointed after her husband died before this, but the first black woman elected to state legislature was in 1938, and that was Crystal Bird Fawcett. And then that was for the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And then we have the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That gave women of color the right to vote federally. Um, it wasn't just for women, but that was something that we wanted to mention and was written to overcome all state and local barriers for people of color. That's not just African-American people, but uh, Latino people, Asian people, all of that. So that was really, really important. And I think we talked a little bit before this section about what it's like nowadays in um, the political climate for women. But we have Hillary, Hillary Clinton, we have Sharice Davis, um, Deb, sorry, Deb Hayland, I think, uh, the first Native American women to be elected to Congress, and then Ilan Omar, and I apologize if I'm messing up these names, um, Raihisha Tabad, the first Muslim women to be elected to Congress, so that's really good. Do we have anything else to say about our recent years? Like, what what does it look like? I know we mentioned that about 25% um, of Congress have women in them. Correct. And our House of Representatives. Um, so we do have women representation, but we talked about that glass ceiling that maybe we aren't going anywhere mm-hmm. at this point. And, and Cole, I would mention, too, because you talked about, of course, this very important Voting Rights Act, which right. has recently... Um, changed a bit um, by a Supreme Court decision in 2015, which has taken away some of, of the Voting Rights Act power. Um, but, you know, in, in your earlier timeline, you mentioned the first woman um, to the to Congress ha- was in 1917, mm-hmm. um, Jeanette Rankin. Um, the first black woman in Congress isn't until the 1960s, right? So, again, right. I, th- I think That's you see that, big that gap. Um, and that was Shirley Chisholm from New York. But I also wanted to mention her because she also is the first uh, woman of color to run for the presidency mm-hmm. um, in one of the major political parties, the two major parties in 1972. So, right, you you mentioned some of these notable firsts, and we definitely want to recognize them. Right. But I think we should also recognize the women that, you know, d- put in the time and the effort to, mm-hmm. to, to run to run mm-hmm. these campaigns, right. which are, are just a ton of work and it, it's so much personal work. costs. Uh, and a lot of emotional costs, too, mm-hmm. because, I mean, even if you look at what's happening now, uh, there's there's a lot of pushback from people uh, to like to say Elizabeth Warren as far as like okay that that's never going to happen or certain things like that. It's very difficult I think to be a woman in politics or be a woman in the face of such media. And it's very brave I think. Um, I agree. Agreed. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I was just thinking of Barbara Jordan in 1972. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Right, yeah, I think we're. Uh, I think we're gonna go ahead and. We have a lot. We have a lot of questions this time around, so I think we're gonna go ahead and start on those. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is the part of the podcast where we answer those tough questions. Now, we had kind of that general history and vocabulary over overview, but there are a lot of questions that people have that we're like not sure who to ask them to or 
not sure if they're really politically correct to ask or something that has always been said to them that they really want to know the answers to. So that's what's going to go on here. Now, the first question I have is why are women still considered a minority group right now, even, even though they are such a large portion of the population well right? absolutely yes <laughs> over 50 percent right right yes right are women and uh but the thing is we're roughly equal in number to men but they do qualify as a minority group because they tend to have less power and fewer privileges than men so that puts them in that category okay yes all right um yeah we talked about 25 percent of the Federal and state legislature mm-hmm. leaders are women, and women of color constitute about nine percent of that number. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that goes back to that gender gap mm-hmm. idea, where right. if you look at, um, you know, certain professions and in politics, mm-hmm. when that since we're about equal, right, in society, you would, you would expect you would see those half of uh, right. the house to have exactly right, and, and some of that again might might be. Um, you know, personal choices and interests, mm-hmm. but but again, that that's connected to the glass ceiling and those other things. And then that we connected to how we we grow Absolutely. up and see ourselves mm-hmm. as women, right? Sort of. Like, are we really pushed the way sons are pushed, for example? Yeah. Right. Now, the second question is: Why is it important for women to be in politics? I I think we kind of explained that already, but what do you guys think? Why are women important to be in politics? Representation is really important to me in thinking about different facets of representation. When you have your ideology, your policy preferences being represented at a decision-making table, you know you have a voice in government. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that we have diverse representation in our policy-making bodies in the United States at all levels of government. So I do think it's very important for women to be in politics to give a voice to women's perspectives, women's Mm -hmm. experiences, women's attained wisdom that may not be there otherwise. So I think that's really important. And secondly, I wanted to kind of address what you were saying Mm -hmm. earlier, too, is just women in office inspire other women to run for office. I mean, mm-hmm. there are research studies that support this. So it's important to have those role models and those examples and those party leaders, perhaps, that will help you come up through the system and run for office and be engaged. Right. Mm-hmm. You kind of have that inspiration mm-hmm. as well as almost a, a confidence and knowing that or comfortableness with knowing that, okay, someone at least has my back, right? Exactly. And this is Jensen again. I I would just add, right, all of the research shows that Mm -hmm. when you have a diverse group of people, um, they make better decisions. And, and, you know, that's not to say that, um, you know, all women think alike. Mm -hmm. Um, We we could probably have a conversation, right? um, It's just, right, it's representation, but it's also from all of our different kinds of identities, we we bring different ideas and different considerations Mm -hmm. to the table. So I think... Um, that, that's another reason to have women in the room. It's not that men don't, don't think about women, don't care about right. you know, stereotypical women's issues, um, but it, it's just that perspective and that life experience that, that's right. that we yeah. add to. Now, this kind of goes into a question that was coming up next. 
is it still valid for women to be in politics even if they don't value legislation or bills that support other women? Yes. I mean, based on my previous <laughs> right. um, response, um, I, yes, I think that is the case. Agreed completely. And you know, women, we need women in all parties, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the main goal is to increase the participation of women in the political arena and and not just relegate them into certain kind of demographic or stereotypical group. Okay, this is what a woman woman thinks, mm. right? But we need right. to have lots of participation and diverse perspectives there at the table. And and just because they're, um, you know, it's hard in the realm of politics because of course we're talking about government and right. and policies. But I think we also need to consider that just because someone doesn't necessarily su- support this particular bill doesn't mean they don't care about that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, they might just have a different Politics idea for a, a solution. Yeah, right. So, Politics is a very difficult realm right. in general, no matter if yeah. you're male or female or non-binary so, or whatever. It still matters to have those voices in the room. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And I think we agree on a lot more than we think about, you know, with this era of partisan polarization. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some basic principles of government that everybody in America can agree on, like the importance of having representation, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And just how you approach different policies differs, and so that's where we get politics. Right. So, mm-hmm. Now, what would you advise people who are concerned about voting for women politicians? Like, I know there is some fear still in some voters about voting for a woman in politics, especially with uh, the presidential election coming up. Is that going to count? Is that vote going to count for anything? Yeah, the the line. It's a hard. It's a hard statement to say, but it's a lot of fear happening. Yeah, and uh, agree, right? We we hear this. Um, I I think the line I hear more often um, is is someone might say, "Well, I don't have a problem electing a woman, or I wouldn't have a problem with a woman and as president." But I I don't think you know, the rest of the country would, or I don't think my neighbor would, or I don't think my family members would. And, um, you know, it's hard to parse out the truth in that. But, you know, in, in terms of what I would say to that, um, you know, this is, these are tough things because we're all voters are making calculations because you want your person to, to win if, mm-hmm. if you believe in them. Um, but just speaking for myself, and, you know, I think others, you know, you, if you heard Elizabeth Warren's speech this week when she um, withdrew from the race. So she was sort of saying something along these lines, right? And, mm-hmm. um, that I, I do think it matters um, that you vote for the person that you believe in. And maybe that's idealistic, but I think that might help address this fear of what other people are going to do because we don't we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. You can know you can who assume. you're voting for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge, I think, comes with trying to, to filter out all of the noise because sometimes right. it's the media and social media saying like, oh, people are saying they might not right. want a woman, right? That that's, that you're going to waste your vote. with this information of concerns and fears all of the yeah. time. And some of that's right, simple sexism and mm. misogyny. But, you know, I, I recognize that's hard to do. But I think if you start with just hearing um, what the candidate has to say, going to their website and reviewing their policies, mm-hmm. and if you find someone you like, and they're a woman, um, you Just know, try not to, yeah, don't, don't worry about, like, oh, other people 
um, might not like this. Um, and, and I think that's the, the, the best thing that we can do if it's we want people we believe in. And we want to elect women because we are hearing explicitly right in the Democratic primary mm-hmm. now that this has been the factor for some of those women candidates, that they, right. they had a lot of support, but then sometimes their supporters feared that they mm-hmm. wouldn't get even Enough, more support. Right. It's about changing a mindset. It, I think it really is because we have, like, even even women question, like, is this going to be enough, mm-hmm. right? And I think you're correct. We just need to take the risk in order to gain the reward or even to even get partially to that. So that's important. And ignore the noise. <laughs> right, which is so difficult it now that is. we have social media yeah. constantly around us. Right. And yeah, I mentioned that study that they did in the late 1990s mm-hmm. about what the appearance of the women candidates. Right. Well, they have followed up with another study more recently, and they find that just the professional journalism media outlets, like your newspapers mm-hmm. or the, you know, the large media outlets, right. will report more equitably on male and female candidates, so they're not seeing this disparity in how they're reporting on them. Now it's issues. Yes, yeah, the same <laughs> amount of time. That's good. But it becomes part of like the punditry and the, the well, commentaries. Yes. Yeah, it's just interesting <laughs> that it wasn't that long ago that this was still happening. Exactly. 1990s. Right. But what you don't think about that. Yes, but social media, though, is now where yeah. people get their news information mm. more often than through these like the local newspaper right and you that, don't go to a newspaper website all the time you just have it on your phone right that's true mm-hmm. that's true but you also have these other voices through social media that don't have the kind of requirements or the journalism ethics right. that you would see the code of things. ethics or, or the knowledge of how to find the correct resources primary sources secondary sources right like yeah and one more thing I, I want to say to that question too is we use party cues mm. when we vote. Yes. So I think hopefully we are at a point or moving closer to a point where it's the party label more than the gender of the candidate that will help us make our mm. vote decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move on from some of the questions I have on the list because we've talked about them. Um, what do you think is ex- the most significant barrier in female leadership in, in politics or um, in general? Okay. Well, I was going to talk about three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go for it. No, no, no. No, that's why we have you on here. Because <laughs> I couldn't decide. I mean, yes. they're all important, but I think number one to me is institutional and mm-hmm. just the male-dominated playing field. I think is very difficult for women to break into and feel comfortable in and feel like they um, are part of. Um, so I think I've already gone over that before, mm-hmm. right? And then the, number two are these political perceptions on women. And the stand, it seems like a differential standard is being applied, whether it is or not, right. that is what's being... But a higher standard, we think. Precisely, of. yes. So I think that can... Uh, make women hesitant to mm-hmm. yeah to make the effort, and then the systemic lack of equity in domestic duties, mm-hmm. and how it falls predominantly on women to take care of families, um, and then finally I just add this little note: a, a culture prizing traditionalism and gender norms can also make it difficult for women 
right. to and this board. This wasn't in there, but just in case anyone doesn't know, gender norms are just what we associate with each gender. Like if a man goes off to work, makes the money, where women mm-hmm. uh, may do the cooking, the cleaning, the housework, taking care of the kids, that sort of thing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I liked those. I really liked those. What you listed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. What are specifically women's issues? I know we we hear that, like, um, okay, that's definitely women are going to back that or something or other. So what are those issues that we really see as, quote, unquote, women's issues? Oftentimes you're going to see abortion and social welfare policies that do have to do with Mm -hmm. taking care of other people Mm -hmm. or addressing the needs of the poor, et cetera. So those are typically yeah. Don't those. we don't we have such a like? I feel like there is a divide in those, even though they're considered women's issues. Absolutely, and yeah, and that is my point with this question. <laughs> <laughs> I had a hard time with that. Oh yes, <laughs> because it is so contextual mm-hmm. too. Where were, mm-hmm. do you live? Where were you raised? What kind of income level are you coming from? Uh, what has been your life experience? Mm-hmm. You know, all of these go into thinking about those policy issues and how we would like to approach them, whether you're male or female, right? right? Um, so maybe we shouldn't have a consideration for women's versus male issues. You know, and I would agree with that, except when I think of some issues like abortion mm-hmm. that have to do with the body. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or even conscri- conscription for men. You know, that's mm-hmm. something that they have to do. Women don't have to do that mm-hmm. as a male. So, you know, these are specific issues that have to do with very personal mm-hmm. matters. And so they should have at least listened to or considered the perspective you know, of somebody who is going to affect. Right. So, so in that regard, I think, yeah, it is a woman's issue. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, when you look at politics, it seems like women in each political party are going to play to the party and act strategically. And so they're going to emphasize women's issues when it's good for their election chances. But then if it's not, then they're going to kind of toe the party line. Okay. Uh, our next question is, how do you think the current era, era of feminism has affected politics? Um, well, this is Jensen. I, I'll, I'll jump in on this one. I, I do think to the extent, the first thing that sort of pops into my mind when I when I hear this phrase, the current era of feminism is is younger women. And of mm. course, there are older feminists, right, from a little bit of an older generation. Um, but I do think, I, I do see a lot of um, enthusiasm and excitement young, among college students and young mm-hmm. folks more generally, um, including women who, you know, given the fact that we're in this Me Too era, right, right where mm-hmm. um, while, while most of these cases deal with you know, the workplace and, and older women, I think maybe women in college are certainly aware and maybe have had these experiences. So um, I think to the extent that feminism more generally, but especially uh, younger women are affecting politics, it's just to almost ex- expect uh, more representation, right, mm-hmm. and more consideration of their issues to be involved in the discussion, um, to expect, right, anytime there's a race that women are going to be a part of that right. race. Um, and that's nice to have an expectation for that. Right. So if it's not right. there, then we we say something. Yeah. But if it's expected, that's what we want. Right. 
it not to be a difference and not to have to be a fight right. to get there. Mm-hmm. And and right, sort of the the flip side of that also is that there's also an expectation that um, their you know I- interests and concerns will be addressed, whether it's a man or a woman. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of right going back a few years, but you know the. Um, sort of the last primary race where you saw a lot of young women really back Bernie Sanders over Hillary, Hillary Clinton, Clinton on the Democratic mm-hmm. side. Um, and, and they might or might not identify as a feminist, but sort of the expectation was, I'm, I'm not going to back Hillary just because she's a woman, right? I'm going to mm-hmm. listen to those issues, and I'm going to expect this man, if if he gets elected, to be considerate of, of the things that I care about. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, it's, to the extent that, that feminism is a little bit hard to, to right. pin down these days, it's right. much more diverse um, than, than historically we think of. Right. Um, but I, I definitely think feminism still matters, mm-hmm. um, and there are still um, these issues of concern to, to women of all ages. Um, but I do think um, that it, it, it looks a little bit different in practice when it comes mm-hmm. to politics. Interestingly, the millennial generation is highly engaged. Normally we see that, okay, the people who don't turn out to vote are the young people. It seems like those young people now, yeah, they're more attuned to politics, yeah. What is also interesting is those, like, the tail end of millennial or the beginning of Gen Z, depending on um, what article you look at or <laughs> what statistic you see um we have we see a big hopefully at least a, a big spike in interest in politics mm-hmm. now and a lot more communication um yes. among parties i think in a younger crowd more open to being like well i mean i agree with this side and i agree with that side We're trying to mesh together you know I like that. <laughs> you you would have been the better person to ask about yeah. that one. <laughs> now, what are the differences that we see women in politics here versus elsewhere, like around the world? Uh, I know we have um, some other women in politics, like in... Uh, I've forgotten now. I had it in my head. It's okay. Well, what pretty much everywhere think? in the right, world. Everywhere, right, right. <laughs> Right. Uh, so what, do you, what, what differences do you see there? Well, I see that women have attained the highest offices in other countries of the mm. world. Yes. 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 And we are, I was trying to find it in my notes. That's right, the prime minister. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Oh, yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> the prime minister. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. And right now, the United States ranks 96th across all nations in the number of women in our national legislature. So... Why yeah, do you we think have, that is? Like, why, why, aren't, why is America so far behind the one that's supposed to be so much more independent and equal? Right. Uh, <laughs> that's a good... But, and I will say... Um, I don't mean to have so much sarcasm <laughs> no, behind there, that, but... Right, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're thinking of, um, of, of uh, Theresa Mayer, mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher, right, and, and Great, and, uh, uh, Great Britain. Um, but there are, are nations that maybe people wouldn't... Uh, assume have had a, a woman right. a, as head of state. So, um, so I don't think it's just, you know, uh, oh, we're we're an evolved democracy or anything like that. I mean, it's. Um, I think some of it is the way our our system is set up um, has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. 
would be my my thought. I was going institutions, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> systems, yes. and perceptions. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of those things that we've been talking about, the glass ceiling, um, the, just the history of our country. The and, culture that we were raised. And the culture we were raised in, exactly. So how we address policies, how we have elections are all for a reason, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, there is some concern with elections now that the Shelby County Beholder case struck down some parts of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Mm-hmm. And so we see that states are passing election laws that some people question, some people find discriminatory, and that are putting hurdles in place for certain populations to go, even go vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that just happened this week in Texas. Where it did. The, we sort of see the disparity in um, black and brown communities in terms of access to Access um, to polls, voting yes. rate, and, and the, 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 the long lines, right, and, and all that, yes. all that sort of stuff is still very much. Absolutely. Texas has closed over 700 polling places. That's an incredible number. It is an incredible number. And especially for like Super Tuesday when everyone is supposed to be able to go. Right? Some people in Houston waited over four hours to vote. 1 or 2 a.m. They were still standing in line. It took me like 10 minutes here. (laughs) Right. Yes. It's handy, right, because we're a smaller community. Uh-huh. But just think if you lived in an urban community or yeah. further and out. I mean, we had multiple different polling locations. And mm-hmm. in, in here, Stephenville, mm-hmm. it's very small. Mm-hmm. And we still mm-hmm. had a large amount we did. Of, of polling locations. Mm-hmm. It's incredible to think that there's none around it just because of these areas. And, well, partially that has to do with new voting centers. Mm. So we started creating these places where you can just go vote no matter what precinct you're in. Mm-hmm. Before that, you'd have to find out, okay, where's my precinct? Where am I Yeah, where do I have to go? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there's a lot more infrastructure built into the election process. Now mm-hmm. you're just they're supposed to streamline it. The idea was to make it more efficient. You just go to one place. You don't have to worry about being in your Definitely precinct. Definitely makes it easier for college students. I'll <laughs> we'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and when we think back to this question, um, somewhat surprisingly, I do think we, we make it more difficult to get registered and to vote in this country than in other places, right? Yes. That, that this is much more um, of, of something that's available to you and you sort of have to opt out of it, where it's it's the opposite here. We have, you, you, you have to actually put in the effort right. um, in order to to be a part of, of To get your voter's electorate. registration yeah. card. So, um, make sure your address is still the same mm-hmm. as it was six months ago or... Exactly. Mm -hmm. And for students, you have to make the choice. Am I going to go back to my home district or am I going to make this my home district? Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's a a challenge. Uh, So geographically, where are we seeing the most women in politics? And this, I guess, isn't federally, but where are we seeing the most women being elected and being recognized as leaderships in politics? I would say in urban areas and just the way the parties have evolved. Mm-hmm. Now the Democratic Party is much more welcoming to women, is much more promoting to women. They have established networks for women to use as they try to fundraise and get support for their campaigns, whereas on the Republican side they don't have that mm. as much. So, yes, yeah, so if you see more women candidates coming up, it's usually through the Democratic Party. Okay. Yeah. And so outside of 
the South, which is right. not <laughs> largely <laughs> yes. Democratic, where, and that's not to say, of course, women um, aren't active and don't have positions here. Mm-hmm. We've, we've seen races oh. to the South where women were very pivotal, but um, right, we, you do see that exactly. in more Democratic and urban areas. Exactly, yes. And I was just thinking of the judge positions that were overturned in Houston in the election of 2018. Mm-hmm. So in 2018, there were like 59 judge positions on the ballot. Mm. Big county. Yes. And lots of courts. Yes. Every single one of them was filled by a Democrat. Mm. And that included, and I was looking for the number, I think it was 19 black women judges, wow. yes, were elected in 2018. So it was, it was quite remarkable. Yes. Yes, that, that that happened. That is incredible. Yeah. So I think, yeah, those areas, and then also areas that are used to more progressive policies, perhaps, and mm-hmm. ideas, well, like the urban centers in the Midwest or the Northeast, right. in California. Um, so, But that might be changing, too. I mean, mm-hmm. again, I'm thinking, right, that these southern states are still largely Republican-dominated, mm-hmm. but um, you think about the the campaign for Doug Jones in Alabama who replaced Jeff Sessions' um, Senate seat, not to get too much in the weeds, but, you know, uh, black women in particular were really credited mm-hmm. with helping to get him elected. Um, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, who ran um, for, for the governorship there, um, came very close, right? And, of course, she's running right. in the Democratic Party, but we're talking mm-hmm. about a, a state that's been very red for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you are starting to see um, some some of these candidates um, do very well, but also I don't, I don't want to forget the work of those voters um, who, mm-hmm. in some of these states, which yeah, I think we would include Texas, um, sometimes have an uphill battle, but they're, yeah. they're putting in the effort. And it's nice that, that we have the right to vote here because it's very, very important. You're right. It's, it's not only the campaigner's job to go out there and make sure people know um, his or her face or his or her name. Um, party affiliation and all that, but it's the job of the voters to get them in there mm-hmm. if we really care mm-hmm. about them. Now, why is there a whole month dedicated to women's history? <laughs> I wanted to bring this up because <laughs> it is March, and so why is that? Why do you think that is? I think that's a, it's a good question because people um, wonder why we have these months set aside for mm-hmm. various groups in, in our country, and I mean, it, specifically for women, it, I think it sort of comes um, down to um, the sort of the history of women being um, less recognized uh, for their contributions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I teach history, so really for much of the 20th century, women were left out of American history classes, and it's not because mm-hmm. they weren't doing stuff and weren't important. Mm-hmm. We just didn't tell those stories. And so I think sort of coming out of this sort of rights revolution era of the 1960s and 1970s, there was a recognition that uh, we need to recognize the the contributions of sort of historically marginalized right. groups. So, of course, we have Black History Month mm-hmm. and Hispanic Heritage Month. There's Pride um, Month. Yeah, Pride Month, of course. And so this is just a way, um, not to say these people are are More better than anybody no. else, right? Are special, um, are anybody who, who's not a woman, right? Or not African-American, or not in the LGBT community, right, don't deserve to be recognized for the work, but it's just the way that um, uh, society has recognized them. So this mm-hmm. this does go back um, to the Jimmy Carter administration um, to start uh, recognizing Women's History Month as a way to highlight 
women in history um, and their contributions. And even though it's been around for a few decades now, um, I think every, every March um, we hear these names and we hear stories of these women that, that, that people just don't know. And so mm-hmm. I think it's still uh, a good thing and still, still needed. Mm-hmm. So it brings out of the shadows what people did women did for so long before we can even think about it and it's like you learn it in grade school elementary school whichever and it's like not something that really affects you as much and then we have this month that's dedicated to it and we're like okay it's, it's, it's incredibly important and all of these names that I went through that's there's so many more and it's so hard to choose what's important when really all of it was Mm -hmm. an incredible step and at the time it felt like such a small step each way but we've gotten to this point and hopefully we'll get even further Mm -hmm. and and yeah and marcy said a little bit earlier she talked about representation and that matters so if you're a young Mm -hmm. you know young girl out there and you're like oh i i want to go in science i want to be an astronaut i want to go into politics but you don't know from your history classes or from the pop you know pop culture around you that women have done those things Mm -hmm. it might discourage you so right here here comes right women's history month and then yes. you start hearing about these women who work for nasa and right mm-hmm. and had these roles and it it i think it then can help inspire people um to recognize that oh i that person did it i i can too there's so many people in history backing <laughs> you you can go for it exactly right yes right um i wanted to ask how do you think we can close this gap between the genders here in the United States, at least. Okay, so in mm-hmm. politics? In politics, okay. yes. Right, so I took that to mean have more women run, perhaps. Okay. Okay. Um, yes, because the more women we get out there, then the more women who are, are in those networks and able to assist and help along other women candidates, right? Mm-hmm. So I just said to support women candidates, you know? Right, and goes back to that, <laughs> that question we had earlier yeah. about the voting. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. And actually maybe consider running for office, somebody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's one of the, it's key is one of the reasons why we don't have more women is because there's not more women running for mm-hmm. offices. And um, so another way is to contribute to organization like Emily's List. And Emily's List stands for Early Money is Like Yeast. And so you give money to the organization and they distribute it to female candidates. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I put down in my notes, but we've already talked about just as media consumers, try to get beyond all the noise and the Mm -hmm. punditry and just look at the candidate candidate and what they're standing for, what they would like to do as political representatives Mm -hmm. now I think we're going to go to our final question what advice do you have for women trying to get into this field or even voting what advice do you guys have well I think it's critical to get involved with party leaders actually you've got to run through the party system if you want to be successful if you want to be elected it's really important third party candidates maybe sometimes get elected but if you really want to get into office have a seat at the table you need to get elected Mm -hmm. and party leaders have a lot of influence because they can help you they can support you they can encourage you they can send funds 
around you to help you with your campaign. Mm -hmm. So it's important to get active in a political party at some level. Support a candidate, okay. you know, mm -hmm. volunteer, um, and try to take leadership roles. Maybe be a delegate to a convention, get your name out there. You get mm -hmm. to become one of the electoral college. <laughs> <laughs> so grow your own network and become involved with organizations, let them know who you are. Um, and then also, on the other side of that, because women do shoulder a lot of the domestic chores, don't be afraid to ask for help. I know sometimes women don't feel like it's right for them to hire a maid. Mm -hmm. You know, I should be able to take care of this myself, right. you know. Mm -hmm. But I think you got to have a network professionally and also personally personally exactly have those resources available to you right right I know it's very difficult for me because I do have I feel that weight of like okay I gotta get the housework done I have to get dishes and all this but I also have um I'm graduating I have a job here I am doing all of these things and I'm working to get my career started it, it's hard to have those other responsibilities on top of all of that. it really is and when you're caring for another person you know, running for office, you might take a back seat for a while. Right. Yes. Right. And and we see that women do that. They mm -hmm. tend to step out of their careers temporarily or permanently once you know, they have a family and they're taking care of their children. Mm -hmm. So, I'll, yeah. and I'll put in a, a quick little plug here for for local politics. I mean, mm -hmm. we we talked um, today about the right to vote and how a lot of people in this country had to fight really hard to earn the right to vote, and yet we see. Um, year after year that, that we don't have huge voter turnouts, but local elections have, have the worst. So local politics matters. Okay. And I think in answer to this question, um, you know, city council, school board, right, these positions matter. Not that national politics doesn't matter, right? right? But they almost can, can have a, a more important um, impact in our day-to-day -day lives, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe when you're trying to figure these things out and dip your toes in, um, start local. Mm -hmm. and, and same thing with voting, right? If, um, I don't know, maybe on a, a primary day or a, a presidential election day, um, I, you should still get out and vote, right? But when <laughs> right, we right. talked about these challenges er earlier, um, a lot of times these local elections that are sort of off year uh, really matter. And and if you get in the habit of voting whenever your, your city has an election, um, I think it's a way for you to get engaged in now you're not only paying attention to these national issues, which again are important, but you're also more plugged into what's going on locally. And I think mm -hmm. that can, can draw us into um, being politically engaged as well. Right. Thank you guys so much for being on here. I think we're going to close us out. Thank you guys so much. We loved hearing from you and maybe we'll have another uh, women specific episode either later this month um, as it is March or in the future because I hope this podcast goes somewhere right <laughs> <laughs> all right so we went over a lot of information there are plenty of questions and answers and materials out there that we may not have covered so if you'd like more information you can send in something to the radio stations Facebook or Instagram I run both of those so I'll get your information that's at the planet 100.7 that's where you guys can get into contact with me. I'm also going to include some of the links to the resources I found in, in the description box below. And I'm probably going to get some uh, sources from these guys as well. 
right. And if you'd like to follow us for more updates about the podcast, maybe our next topic or next month's topic, again, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram. We do also have a Twitter for Planet 100.7 again. So thank you so much. And please join me next episode with a guest every week for those tough questions. Thank you. Thank you.